let's um, open your Bibles tonight to the book of Hosea as we finish out um, with chapters 11 through 14. And if you forgot your Bible, we have plenty in the back. And I'll keep reminding you, if you need um, an outline of, or a timeline of the kings and, and all the prophets, that's back there too. It's really, really helpful to have, so I'd recommend that you grab that if you need it. But man, isn't it sweet to think about, remember when Jesus, after he rose again from uh, the grave, that as he was walking on the road to Emmaus, he was speaking to um, these two disciples and, and remember that they didn't realize it was Jesus. And then as they were talking, it says that he um, went from Moses and throughout all the Old Testament and the prophets speaking of himself and their hearts burned within. And so it just reminded me even tonight as we finish out the book of Hosea and specifically we're going to be looking at God's unquenchable love. But just going back to what Jesus, he shared, he gave the greatest sermon on himself in the Old Testament. That's what we're going to see tonight, is Christ, the gospel. Not, we, we already have seen it, but exemplified in these last four chapters of the book of Hosea. And again, as this is Hosea speaking to Israel as a nation as um, as a whole, right, the ten northern tribes, the, the, those northern, uh, the northern nation, because it's split in two at this time, remember the context of um, what's going on in Hosea's life. Remember it was Hosea whose own wife left him and, and gave herself over to adultery and sexual immorality. And it was Hosea who went to the marketplace and, and purchased her back for 15 shekels of silver and um, some barley. Remember that? And how that we, we said how that's a picture even how Christ redeemed us back, right, out of the slavery of sin. Now, can you imagine, we, we, we looked at in prior how God, God uh, shows them their sin, right? He wants them to realize that they are a sinner, not to condemn them, but that they might turn from their sin and, and be healed from it. And can you imagine, again, put yourself in even Gomer's shoes because we've all committed adultery. We've all committed idolatry, that is, against the Lord, which the Lord says is adultery. Having another love other than him. So anyways, can you imagine uh, Gomer now, right? No, no doubt feeling condemned, no doubt feeling outcast, feeling unloved. And here's how the Lord chooses to end the book of Hosea. is specifically talking about his unending, unquenchable love. And see, the same love is true for you and I, for us to enjoy and to experience. As we walk with the Lord, as we've been saved, as we've been redeemed. And so tonight, we're going to look at three ways or three aspects of God's unquenchable love. So number one, in chapter 11, we're going to see God's love is Christ crucified. God's love, Christ crucified. And then in chapter 12, we'll see God's love in that he speaks the truth. So the love of God displayed in, in, in speaking truth. And then finally, in chapters 13 and 14, we'll see God's love in healing his people. So that's God's love, Christ crucified, chapter 11. God's love in speaking the truth, chapter 12. God's love in healing his people, chapters 13 and 14. And hopefully that little outline will, will help you kind of know the greater context and the greater picture of where we are. So let's start uh, chapter 11, looking at God's unquenchable love. So in verse 1, we see, When Israel was a child, this is the Lord speaking, he said, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to carved images. I taught them, excuse me, I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and I fed them. Verse 5, he shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrians shall be his king, because they have refused to repent. And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people, they are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. I... 
or excuse me, verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim, and how can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zebulun? My heart churns within me. My, my sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger, and I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. Then his sons shall come trembling from the west, and they shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria, and I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. So we see here, and I wanted to read the context of the whole chapter, so you saw it all the way through. So you see the Lord's heart. And as we go through this, if you're one who writes in your Bible, if you're a note taker, notice how many times the Lord says, I, I will. I will. Just note that, pay attention to it, and go back and read it. But going back up to verse 1, we, we see there that when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So the Lord chose Israel in Egypt, and you know this, that the Bible actually says that when Israel was in Egypt, see, I, I grew up always thinking that um, the Israelites were serving God in Egypt, but that's not the case. The Bible tells us that they were actually serving idols. That they, were, that they were worshiping other gods. And see, there was nothing, nothing um, I guess, admirable or favorable, right, in their deeds. But God chose them nevertheless. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8, we see this. The Lord says that I did, the Lord's, I did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were least of all the peoples, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and, with, and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we see there, the Lord tells us, he didn't choose Israel because there's something great about them. They weren't extravagant. They weren't more number multitudes. But he chose them to keep his promise, right? And, and we're going to look at that later, the, the covenant that he made with Abraham. That he would bless Abraham. That he would make his descendants as the stars of the sea. And that through Abraham's seed, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's speaking of Christ. You know that. But anyways, so the Lord chose, chose um, Israel when they were in Egypt. And look at this. In verse 2, we see that in spite of God's love and grace, Israel went after idols. They sacrificed to Baals. And they burned incense to carved images, we see. So they had their idols. Verses 3, he says, um, and here we start to see where the word says, I. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. But they did not know that it was I, excuse me, that I healed them. And that I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. And, and I was to them who t uh, as those who take the yoke from their neck. And I stooped and fed them. See, so the idea, the, the word saying, not only I, I chose you in Egypt, right, but then I brought you out. And what do you do as, as a, with a young child, with a baby? They, they, you, first, you have to teach them how to start to crawl, right? And then eventually, they start to, to walk. But sometimes you have to walk behind them. You have to hold their hands up so they don't fall flat on their face. There's, there's this training up. You're walking with them. They're taking literally baby steps, Right? There's this learning process. And that's what the Lord's saying. See, he brought his people out of Egypt. And then we look, you, you read through the book of Numbers and you see God teaching his people to walk. Through the experience, as, as they would come to the bitter waters of Mara, remember, remember that? As they would, there would be this rebellion in the camp. God to, uh, showing that they would, he would provide their needs with sending manna. Man, with the rock that the water sprang forth to provide for them, God was teaching his people to trust him in the book of Numbers. But he did that. And that, not only that, he says there that he fed them. They were dependent upon him in the desert. That he healed them. Remember, one specific instant, one example, when, when the people rebelled and God sent the serpents among the camp, and the serpents, the venomous serpents, uh, there was many who were getting bitten and, and killed. But what did the Lord do? He said to Moses that he used to set up a pole, right? 
with, with, a, with a serpent on it. And, and anyone who looks upon the pole would be healed. They wouldn't die. Of course, foreshadowing of Christ. But he led them gently. And we also see um, in verse 4 that he said that he removed the yoke from their neck. The yoke, the bondage that they were under of, of, of sin. And now, remember, Jesus invites us to be yoked to him. So there's this idea of God chose them. Now God has walked with them. See, God's, God's loved them graciously from the beginning. And now that grace hasn't changed, even in their rebellion, even in sin. God disciplines, but he still loves them. And you see, that even speaks to us, is that our, our walks with the Lord, is, it's, it's all out of grace. See, once you're saved, God saves us, right? We can all say, I'm saved by grace. But do you know that we stand in grace? There's this subtlety to start to think, well, I've been walking with the Lord five, ten years, or, or now maybe I'm, I'm helping in Sunday school, or the Lord's using me to witness, or the Lord's doing this. And then we start to like get this little badge or a little bit of pride in us, right? And we start to think that we earn favor with God. But he, it's, it, we, we stand in his grace. But look at verse 5. He says that, they, uh, that he shall not return to Egypt, but the captivity that he's talking about, this judgment that's to come, is the Assyrians. The, but the Assyrians shall be his king. And notice why. Because they refuse to repent. So God gave them over. This is correction. And, and he talks in verse 6, as we read through, you saw that they, um, because of their own counsels, which is interesting, they're interesting. Their own counsels. So they had problems, right? They had longings. They had anxieties. They had worries. There was still, uh, there was marriage then, right? God instituted marriage, so there was uh, bickering between husbands and wives. There was everything, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. So the same things that we face today, but it may be in different ways. But notice, they approached and they responded according to their own counsel or, or their own wisdom. And that's contrary to what God invites us to do. See, the, the, in Psalm 119, it says that the word of God is our counselor. That we can come to him. And, and they refused to, to submit to the Lord, to go to him. And, and this led them slowly down this path of decay. And then finally, look in verse 7. He says, my people are bent on backsliding from me. The, the idea there is what, or what he's saying is that they have an opinion. They, they've said that I'm refusing to repent. I know they knew, right? They, they knew it was wrong. God showed them. He used Hosea to speak. But they refused to change. They refused to submit to the Lord. But notice, and this is a warning in verse 7, they still, he says that though they call to the Most High. So there's this, maybe this outward image of their life. They're, they're calling out to God. They're, they're praying. They're asking him. But their actions and their lives weren't aligned with that. And so God, God says that when you refuse, what, he, what he's teaching us is that when we refuse to submit to him, even though we call upon him, but, but if I, my life doesn't align, I'm walking after my own counsels. See, God doesn't invite us just to ask counsel of him and then and it's not at that point then we choose, am I going to obey it or not? But James warns of, us of this, not to be double-minded when you ask for wisdom of God, Right? We don't go. It's, um, so somebody said once that obedience to the Lord isn't like going shopping where you're wa walking past, uh, you know, Isley's chip chopped ham over there or maybe there's a mountaineer cake over here. Nobody would want that. But, you know, like you have to make this choice and obedience to the Lord isn't picking and choosing what we want. But it's going before the Lord and saying, no matter what you ask me to do or no matter what you're calling me to do, I will obey. But they refuse to do that. And notice, it went further. They called to the Most High, but they didn't exalt him. In essence, they recognize who he is and calling to God that, that he is God, that he hears. There's this prayer life. But in refusing to exalt him, they're not putting God in, their, in his proper place. 
That's the essence of it. And when, when we refuse to obey God, we're not exalting him. We're not putting him in his proper place. Because if he's Lord, then that means that he calls the shots, right? And so this is, God just um, saying this is the state of my people. We've been looking at this. But notice the shift here in verse 8. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? And, and how can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I set you like Zebulun? My heart turns within me. So there's this shift now. So God's saying, they refuse to uh, submit to me. They refuse to exalt me. They're turning after idols. But do you see the heart of God? He's saying, how can I give you over to complete and utter destruction, to be annihilated? And how do we know that he's saying that? Well, you see these two cities that he mentions in verse 8, um, Adma and Zebulun. I know that I'm not saying that right, but I don't know how to say it. So we can, uh, and I, you probably don't know how to say it either, so that's okay. So we can just go th- with it together. But these two cities are um, two cities that were destroyed, that God wiped out. Remember when he brought his judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. If you go back and if you read when, when um, at the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, there, these two kings of these cities are mentioned. And so they were also wiped out with Sodom and Gomorrah. So the Lord's saying, how can I let this utter destruction or just a complete annihilation, in essence, and, uh, this being wiped out? We'll get to that. But notice, did you see, he says, how can I, um, four times, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? How can I make you and how can I set you? And then the Lord answers his own question. We don't have to answer it. He says there, my heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. So the Lord's response to how can I, he's, he says, my heart churns, or, or, or that literally means it's turned over. The idea is that it's, it's deeply affected by a spasm. It's something that, that, that's impacted from, from deep within. And the Lord's saying that, that all of this is from within, that I, I, I can't give you over because you're my people. I've made this covenant with you and I love you. His heart is so deeply moved. They deserve the destruction like Sodom and Gomorrah. And we would say, yeah, they do. I, I do. That's righteous. That's what they deserve. But look, in verse 9, in saying that he, he, his heart, he can't give them over, he says, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. This is that righteousness. God's righteous judgment. And I will not again destroy Ephraim. And notice, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come with terror. See, how can the Lord then, we have to ask ourselves, be holy? How can he still be holy? In essence, he has to deal with sin. He can't overlook it. That's unrighteous. That's not holy. Yet we see the answer to this all the way up even. He hinted at it in verse 2. Did you catch it? He says there, go, go back up. Um, I'm sorry, in verse 1, sorry. In verse 1, he says, When I, or excuse me, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. See, this there, even the Lord is referring to Christ. Because in Matthew, Matthew 2.15 it spoke prophetically how Christ would come, the Son of God, the Messiah, would come out of Egypt. And remember that when Jesus was still young, that, um, uh, who, was, who was the governmental leader, the Romans, but who was his name? Pilate. Yes, thank you. I was completely blanking. Remember he wanted to wipe out all the boys, all the young kids, because the, because the, uh, uh, the wise men came and, and they saw the star. It, what is it? Herod. What? Herod. There you go. Oh, that's okay. It was, so it was Herod. I didn't remember either, so don't feel bad. 
So it was, it was Herod, and he wanted to wipe out all the baby boys. And what did Jesus do? He appeared to Joseph and Mary in a dream, and he told um, them to take Jesus to go down to Egypt until um, Herod died. And then he came back, he brought Jesus back up out of Egypt. So that prophecy is here in Hosea 11.1. 1. See, because Hosea didn't have the full picture. It, he still, um, before Christ came, but we know on this side of the cross that, that God can be perfectly holy. He can still be holy and, and execute his righteous judgment of our sin that we deserved because of Christ. Because it was Christ who took our place. It was Christ who bore the wrath of God for our idolatry, our rebellion. The other lovers, the, the other affections that we went after and first, excuse me, Second Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For he, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, God, can, God is still perfectly holy, not changing his standards, not becoming a man, but because of the love of his own nature, his own character. It was his heart that turned over within him that he gave his son to die for our sins. And that's the grace of God, isn't it? See, that's the grace of God that his heart would be affected like that. I mean, it's not like Israel said, well, Lord, I'll try more. I'll clean up my act. It's not like they, they had, it's not like they could give him something to try to appease him or to change his mind. But God, out of his own character, chose to love his people and demonstrated his love in sending Christ. So we see here that God's perfect love demonstrated in the, in the cross, in the coming of Christ. But not only that, you might also ask, man, well, how can that, we can struggle with that, right? Because I, some, I continually sin. We all sin. But if you look at your cross-references, maybe your Bible um, has this, Numbers 23. Numbers 23, where the Lord says this same thing as in verse 9, where he says, For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come again with terror. Well, if you go back and if you read Numbers 23, that's where, remember the man named Balaam? That's where Balaam was hired by um, the, the king to curse Israel, to curse them, because he didn't want them to prosper. And, and he's bringing all these curses up, up upon them, and he goes and he tries to speak this curse, and he only can bless them. The blessing came out. And it was interesting that the Lord actually, or when he was trying to pronounce this curse, it says that they were up on a high mountain. And as he would be looking down at the camp of, of Israel, they would be encamped in the form of a cross. Do you know that? If you actually lay out the dimensions uh, of the size of the tribes and, and where they were to encamp around the tabernacle that was at the center. And see, as, as he was looking down and he tried to curse, God wouldn't let him curse because his people couldn't be cursed. Because as God sees them and as God sees you and I, he sees us in Christ, the cross. And so it's just an in, another interesting um, cross-reference of, of when God's saying the same thing. He's declaring it. And so for you and I, those who are in Christ, then God loves you. And we say it almost every week, hopefully every week here, but his love is demonstrated as you look to the cross of Christ. That's where we see the love of God, not in circumstances, not in financial blessing, not in health. God can choose to uh, grace us with those things, but God's love is demonstrated at the cross. So keep going on in verse 12 there. He says, Ephraim has encircled me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God, even the Holy One who is faithful. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind. He daily increases lies and desolation, also, they make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried to Egypt. So we see there, just again, God's charge against Ephraim, some of the things that are going on, the lies there, uh, the covenants that they're making with other nations. But notice in verse 2, 
And, and some believe here now at verse 2 that there's this shift where Hosea is speaking. Of course, like it's Hosea, God's using Hosea to deliver the message, this, this prophecy, to speak to the nation. But this is more so Hosea speaking, not the Lord uh, particularly through Hosea. But notice this. He says in verse, verse 2, now we're going to see this uh, chapter 12, God speaking uh, the, in truth by demonstrating his love by speaking in truth. So the Lord, verse 2, also brings a charge against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his deeds, he will recompense him. He took his brother by the heel, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and he sought favor from him. But he found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. That is the Lord of hosts. The Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Observe mercy and justice and wait on your God continually. And so here we see that Hosea speaking. He, he gives a little bit of an account of, of God, God's people being disciplined. Because that's what the Lord's doing to Israel, right? He's allowing the Assyrians to come and to take them captive to discipline them. He's correcting his children. And so he's referencing another um, time in the Israel's past when this happened, when God's discipline was experienced. And he, he, he takes us back to the story of Jacob. You remember Jacob, right? Even he had a twin brother, and you remember what his twin brother's name was? Esau. And as, as they came out, Esau's um, was Harry. That's what his name means, Harry. And Jacob, his name means hill catcher. That's, that's, that's why they named him. Because as they were coming out, even Jacob, it says the Bible, that he was grabbing at his brother's heel. He didn't want him to come out first. Why? Well, we, it's a picture of all that's going to go on in, in his life. But the first son experienced or had a double blessing, a double portion of the inheritance. But this was the, the trajectory of Jacob's life, wasn't it? Jacob was one who was always conniving, always was tripping people up, trying to get the best deal, trying to get ahead of the game. He was a heel catcher, just as his name implied. And we know that it's the famous story when, when um, his dad was on his deathbed, remember, about to bless his sons. He knew that Esau would get, this, get the double uh, portion. But previously, before that, Esau came in, and he was a fleshly man. He was a manly man, right? Had, had a great beard. He surely didn't use beard oil or anything like that. He probably wouldn't wear skinny jeans like I do sometimes. But he was a manly man, a hunter. And, and he came in, and he said, I'm just so hungry. Man, give me some of your stew, Jacob. And Jacob said, again, being the hill catcher, only if you, what, sell me your birthright. He wanted the double portion, any chance that he could take to get ahead. And Jacob, not, or excuse me, Esau, not caring about it, gave it to him. And then what happened? As, as they were on, as, as his father was on his deathbed, about to bless it, uh, his mother came in and, 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 and she knew that the blessing had, the Lord told her that Jacob, right, would be blessed, but she didn't trust the Lord to do it. And so she told her son to go out and to kill a goat and, and, to, and to put the goat fur on, on him so that when he could go into his dad, he would smell like Esau would smell. Like, I guess that's always blood and guts and goaty, whatever that is. Maybe we'll make a man candle scent out of that, goats. But, but anyways, he would go to his father, and Esau was that hairy, right, that he would touch Jacob's arm, and, and he would think that it's Esau, and he did that, and, and he—anyways, uh, Jacob gets, gets the blessing, and then what happens? His brother Esau comes in, and, and he's completely wrecked because his dad just gave his blessing, his inheritance, to his brother who deceived. And Esau wants to kill Jacob, and so Jacob flees. And it was as Jacob was fleeing, right? He was, he was in the back of the desert, and it was a long day. He came down. And, and remember, as he goes to sleep, it says there that he wrestled with an angel. But we know that it, the Bible, that it tells us that it wasn't just an angel. It was, it was a Christophany. It was, it was Christ he actually wrestled with. 
And, and as he wrestled, um, if you read just the Genesis account of this in Genesis 32, the, the, you know, you initially read it and you think, man, what, what's up with Jacob? He must be like in WWE or something like that because he overcame this angel and he was blessed. He got the angel to bless him. Well, here the Bible is telling us the actual, uh, the, the Bible being the best commentary on the Bible. Here's what really happened. Look again in verse 3. It says here that in his strength, he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. And notice he wept and he sought favor from him. And what the Lord's telling us there is is it's not that Jacob overcame the angel in his strength, but it was that in Jacob's weakness and just holding on to the angel, it would seem, to Christ, and just asking him, weeping him, or excuse me, weeping, asking him to, to bless him, that remember what the angel did, that he touched his hip and that he put his hip out of socket and that it was from that day forward that Jacob always walked with a limp. And so there's, this, is the, this isn't the primary principle of what we're talking about tonight in God's love, but it's important. You see um, God's blessing in his discipline, right? Because from that day on, God said, you're no longer called Jacob, but he changed his name to Israel. Or governed by God. See, God disciplined him. He had a limp now, but he was no longer the heel catcher that he was. Sometimes God allows that to happen in our lives. To come to that place where, man, we just have this limp, there's this hurt, but in that God heals us. And there's that humility, right? Because think about it. Every time Jacob took a step now, he, he would remember because he would be limping. But, but the idea here is that as Hosea's, the principle for Hosea chapter 12, what we're looking at, is that Hosea is saying, look, the Lord did this in the past. He disciplined his people. He correct them. He gives this example. And, he, and, he, and he's even, this is Israel's history, Right? This is the 10 northern tribes. Their name is Israel, from whom Jacob's name God changed to Israel. So he's referencing that. But look at this change in verse 7. Out of nowhere, it says, a cunning, a cunning Canaanite. Now, what in the world is that? Your translation might say, or maybe in the margin, it says, a merchant. Well, here, the Lord is now bursting on the scene, and he's saying, no, my people aren't Israel, they aren't governed by God. They are that in name, but in reality, they're Canaanites. What's he mean by that? See, in speaking the truth in love, God is showing his people, he's revealing to his people who they really are. Who they really are. No longer governed, governed by God. But in calling them a Canaanite, you know the, the history of Canaan, right? This is Ham's son. And Ham was, was Noah's son. So this is Noah's gr- grandson, Canaan. But it, it was Ham who walked in on, on Noah when he was drunk. And, and we, we don't know exactly what happened, but exposed his na- nakedness, right? And then it, he went out and told others. In essence, he's, he's, he's making light of his father's sin and sharing it. But Noah cursed Ham and Canaan. And so from, from that time on, that's the Canaanite people. That's where the Canaanites came from. They were cursed by Noah. Now, we know a little bit about um, the Canaanites if you go and read uh, just their culture and what was going on. But look what, how the Lord describes them. He says in verse 7 that they're deceitful scales in his hand. So they're not just, right? They're, they're deceiving in, in their transactions and, and how they live. They love to oppress, he says. And then and Ephraim said, Surely I, I have become rich, and I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They shall not find, or they shall find in me no iniquity that is sin. But anyways, so he's calling them the, the Canaanites, He's saying, look, this is who you are. Yet Israel, they're, they're, they're lifted up in pride. They're saying, I'm rich. They're, they're saying, you're not going to find any sin, any iniquity in me. So they were deceived. 
They were self-deceived. So when Hosea, now you get the picture of what the Lord's doing in speaking the truth in love. Hosea saying, yeah, this is Israel. This is those who God disciplined. This is his chosen people. But God says, yes, that's who they are in name, but in reality, they're Canaanites. They're Canaanites. Their pride, in verse 8, we saw that, uh, led Israel to think that they're righteous, that they have no need for God. You see, John 1.14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we behold, beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And even as Jesus in the New Testament, as he, he came and he walked among his people, we see there that he was full of grace, but he was also full of truth. Jesus called sin, sin. Jesus spoke the truth, didn't he? And I'm reminded just even in John 4, if you go and read in John 4 when Jesus, remember he was on his way to Samaria, but he, he, he had to make a detour, he said. And it was in the middle of the day and, 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 and he made this detour and he ends up at a well. And no doubt thirsty, he came to the well and his disciples go off to the local get-go or sheets to get a, a quick bite to eat, but they went into town to get something to eat to bring back to them or for them all to have. And as Jesus is there, what he was waiting for was this woman who came. And she came by herself in the heat of the day because she was shunned. She was shunned by, by all those, by uh, the community, by society. And Jesus starts to talk with her, right? And, and Jesus, in, in saying, well, why don't you go get your husband to come and to fetch the water? And she says, I have no husband. And remember what Jesus responded and said? that you speak well, that you have no husband. In fact, that I think it's, he says that you have five, and the man that you're living with now is, is not your husband. So notice, Jesus coming, he spoke the truth because he loved her. He loved her, and he wanted, to see the, he wanted her to see the sin that she might turn to him, see her need for, for forgiveness, See that the longing that she's trying to fulfill in her life can't be fulfilled by a man, by anything else, but only by him. He brought sin to the surface that he might heal her and that she might live. See, G. Campbell Morgan says this, it is because God is love that he sees clearly the failure and he makes no terms with it. He calls things by their right name. And that's what God is doing here in Hosea. He's calling his people by their right name, Canaanites. And the Lord does that with us, right? You know that God loves you tonight. And so sometimes in our lives, in my life, he speaks the truth in love. And it hurts and it stings. Man, I don't want to deal with that, Lord. You want me to, to say this, to share that? You want me to give up that show or whatever it may be? But it's because God loves you. He demonstrates his love and he speaks the truth to us. See, it's the most self-loving thing to be afraid to offend somebody in speaking the truth of God's word to them. It, that, that's the epitome of self-love, isn't it? I love myself that I'm not willing to tell you the truth. See, Jesus the Lord is willing for you to reject him because he loves you that much. He'll put himself out there. He'll tell you the truth. But how will we respond? But we see his love demonstrated in, in, in sharing the truth with his people. Keep going, verse 9. He says, But I am the Lord your God, and ever since the land of Egypt, I will make again you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. I've also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions. I've given symbols through the witness of the prophets. Though Gilead has idols, surely they are vanity, or they're, they're worthless, they're empty. Though they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal, indeed their altars shall be heaps in the furrows of the fields. Jacob fled to the country of Syria, and Israel served for a spouse and for a wife, he tended sheep. 
By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. And by a prophet, he was preserved. Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore, his Lord will leave the guilt of his bloodshed upon him and return his reproach upon him. So keep going on. Verse 13, God's love, as we now start to look at God's love and healing his people. When Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel, but he offended through Baal worship and he died. Notice here just an interesting principle that when walking with God, did you see that the nations trembled? That's what he means at the beginning of verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, the nations trembled. Yet he, he and the Lord exalted himself in Israel. Remember, um, yet Jericho, the city was afraid because they saw what God was doing. They saw the victories and they trembled. But notice, but when he offended through Baal worship, he died. See, when we give ourselves over to sin, our strength is taken away, isn't it? We die. We, we see that in the life of, of another strong man. Remember Samson? That same thing happened to him. Man, he played with sin. He played with it. He just toiled with it. And it didn't happen right away. That first time that he took of the, the honey that was out of the carcass or that he was in the vineyard. He flirted with Delilah. Uh, he got closer and closer till eventually, right, he, he shared uh, that his strength was in his hair. See, that didn't happen in a moment. But, but know that your, your sin, my sin, will steal our strength from us because it separates us from God. Verse 2. Now, they sin more and more and have made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver, according to their skill, and all of the work of craftsmen, they say of them, let, them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away, like the chaff or, or the part of the wheat that was worthless, that, that was just blown, didn't have any value. They were like the chaff blown off from the threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. So we see here that their sin, they gave themselves over to sin and, and they increased more and more in it. They, they had these molded images, and we've been talking about this, but the idols that they made were according to their own skills. Isn't, and isn't that what we do, right? When we, when we quote-unquote make a god with a small g or this idol, we're crafting something that we're trying to produce. It's from our own skills, quote-unquote. But here, what he's actually referring to when he says that they kiss the they sac the men who sacrifice kiss the calves, it's probably referencing human sacrifice as part of their worship. See, at that time, they would offer babies on the arms of idols. They, they would heat up these, these uh, metal idols, and the arms would be burning, and they'd set the babies there, and they'd be burnt to death and killed. And as one pastor said it, we do the same thing today in a different way, don't we? with solution that burns babies for the sake of convenience, of, of money, of whatever it may be. But it's the same thing in a different form. And notice the result as he describes it there in verse 3 is that they're empty. They fade away. They're like the morning dew that's gone, right? It's there and it's gone. Like the chaff that, that is just blown. They can't stand there was no weightiness, no substance to life. As although sin promises vitality in life, it fails to deliver. But verse 4, yet I am the Lord your God. Ever since the land of Egypt, and you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. Although they would turn to the Assyrians, although they would turn to, to idols to save them, to satisfy them, they would learn that there is no God but our Lord. Notice 1 Timothy 2.5 says this same thing, that there was one God and that there was one mediator between God and men, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Jesus said this himself, that there was 
one way to heaven. He says that I am the door, right? And that's Jesus. There's no savior. There's no salvation apart from him. Christ alone can redeem us from our sins. But in verse five, he says, I knew you in the wilderness and in the land of great drought. So the idea is that wilderness, they didn't have these great cities, right? They didn't have substance. There there were times of droughts, times of difficulties. But in verse six, he says that when they had pasture, when they were filled, they were exalted. Excuse me, they were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore, they forgot me. So as, when they were in the wilderness and when they had little, when they were in difficulty, they, they turned to the Lord. They were dependent upon him. But as soon as they were satisfied, as soon as they had the green pastures and they didn't have to worry about where, where their next meal was going to come from, man, they just started to ease up just a little bit, right? And that's what we do. That's what we do when we start cruising in life. And, and our hearts become exalted. We start to think that house that we have or the job, our family, whatever it may be, our spiritual walk even, is because of something in and of ourselves. We become less and less dependent on God. Maybe our prayer life starts to fade away some. or we're, We don't take the word of God as serious as we once did. And I can easily fall into this trap And yet I I ask God to bless me, right? And he gives us these blessings sometimes, but they're the worst things for us. So do you remember that Psalm 84, just kind of on a sidetrack, going off of this principle for life? Psalm 84, 11 says that um, God will not, there's not one good thing that God will withhold from those who walk uprightly. So we have to remember and, and remind ourselves that sometimes it's a good thing that God withholds something from us. It's a good thing that God withholds something from us. Because he knows that the moment I had that job or that salary raise, that I'd want nothing to do with him. My heart would be exalted. And so sometimes it's a blessing of God to withhold from us so that we don't forsake him, so that we don't turn from him. The Bible warns us of this. We see this in Deuteronomy. In 32.15, it says that when Jeshurun grew fat and kicked, you grew fat, you grew thick, and you were obese. Then he forsook God, and he, and he made him, or God, the God who made him, and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. So just remember and be aware that even in the blessings that our hearts don't become exalted, that we don't forsake God, that we don't forget him. And even be thankful that when God, when you're praying for that job, that different job, that different house, that car, whatever it may be, that when God withholds it, he knows that it's not a good thing for us. And that's a blessing in and of itself. Verse 7, So I will be to them like a lion and like a leopard. By the road I will lurk, and I will meet them like a bear deprived of her cubs. I will tear them open, or I will tear open, excuse me, their rib cage, and there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. So this is referring verses 7 and 8 of of, uh, Assyria's coming invasion as they would take um, Israel away and just, and, and, and carry them away, wipe them out. But notice verse 9, he says, O Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is from me. I will be your king. Where is any other that he may save you in all your cities? And your judges to whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. So we see here in verse 9, the Lord says that, Israel's help will be found, um, my translation says from him, but the proper translation should probably be in him. That, that their help is found in the Lord. In the Lord. And, and that's an interesting concept, isn't it? Are, are you found in him? Are you found in our help? Are you found in our Savior? In Christ. And it's a cool principle that when you accept Christ, 
What does he promise to do? Indwell you by his Holy Spirit within us, and then we're also in him. In Romans, um, Paul picks up on this idea. In chapter 5, he says this. I'll read it to you here. He says um, in verse 10 that for if when you were enemies, you were reconciled to God through the death of his son. We, we, we've been looking at that. Much more, having been reconciled, you shall be saved by his life. But that is actually should be translated in his life. So the same concept, again, taking a step back, remember chapter 11, we looked at how Christ crucified, that's God's love demonstrated for his people. He, he saved them by taking the righteous judgment of God. He, and then now he's saying that you remain in me, right? You're found in me. And when we're found in Christ, there's no condemnation. You will persevere. You can be sure that God will see you through to the end. But our help is found in him, he says. Then in verse 12, he says, The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, and his sin is stored up. The sorrows of a woman in, in childbirth shall come upon him. He's an unwise son, for he should not stay long where children are born. I will ransom them from the power of the grave, and I will redeem them from death. Oh, death, where is your or excuse me, O death, I will be your plague. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. So we see here that, that Paul references what the Lord is saying in verses 13, and that the Lord would overcome death, that he would defeat death. And that Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 55. So, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? And you know this, that it's Christ's death that ransomed us from the power of death and destruction. He redeemed us from the power of the grave. And, and, and Paul goes on and he, he would say in Romans further in chapters 6 and 7 that, that we're saved in his life. But, and, and, and not only are we saved from the penalty of sin, but then he goes on to share that how we are baptized into his death, right? And so now our, our old man, our flesh is dead to sin that we don't have to serve it anymore. And then later in Romans, he goes on in, in, in chapter 8 and he says that we'll be glorified one day. Right? And that's ultimately talking about how God will deliver us from the presence of sin altogether. See, Christ redeemed us. He bought us back. He, our, he, he bore our penalty for sin. Then he saved us from the power of sin in our life. That's sanctification. And then finally, one day, glorification will experience that when we're in the presence of God. When we're delivered fully from the presence of sin. And it's all because of Christ. But he goes on, verse 15, though he is fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come upon, excuse me, come up from the wilderness. Then his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall plunder the treasury of every desirable prize. Samaria is held guilty, for, he has, for she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, and their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child ripped open. All of this just referencing the judgment of Assyria, their, their coming invasion, and what they would do. But notice here, verse, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 14. O Israel, return to the Lord your God. You have stumbled because of your iniquities. Their sin has, has caused them to become tripped up, to fall. But he says in verse 2, take words with you. And return to the Lord. Say to him, take away our iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are, are our gods. For in you the fatherless find mercy. So we see God's call to return to him. 
that he would heal them, that he would restore them. And, and, it's, and it's interesting, right, to see almost an outline here of biblical repentance. What does real repentance look like? We've been talking about it on Sundays, but take a look at it here. Number one, in verse two, they say, take away our iniquities. Take away all iniquity, excuse me. So they recognize that they've sinned, their iniquity. So there's a confession. In essence, they're agreeing with God that what they have done is iniquity, is wrong. That's what confession is. Confession isn't for God. Do you know that? It's not so that he knows our sin. He, he knows everything. But when we confess our sins, we are saying, the Lord, I'm, I'm admitting, I'm saying that what you call sin, what you call wrong, your standard, I've broken it. And I agree with that. That's what confession is. But they confess. Notice number two, they, they pray and they ask for God to receive them graciously. So they're not coming. Conf- their, their restoration isn't saying, look at God at what we've done. That wouldn't be graciously, would it? They, would, they, they aren't coming by their own works. They aren't saying, Lord, I, I read my Bible 10 days in a row. Now forgive me and have favor upon me. But to be forgiven is all grace. It's the grace of God. And, and then in verse, at the end of verse 2, they say, we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. In other words, if you look at the beginning of verse 2, they say, take the words with you. The words are, are aligning with their actions. It's not just something that they're saying in form. It's a reality within their hearts. But they say that they'll, re- they'll, they'll turn from Assyria, they'll turn from their, their idol worship, from, from their gods, Right? But, and then look at God's response in verse 4. Look what the Lord says. He says, I will heal them. I will heal their backsliding, and I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from him. And I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily and, and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread His beauty shall be like an olive tree and his fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under the shadow, his shadow shall return and they shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do any more with idols? I have heard and observed him. I am like a green cypress tree and your fruit is found in me. So God's love in healing his people. So notice, God had been inviting them the entire time to repent of their sin and to turn to him. And here, as they do, as, or, or excuse me, as the Lord gives an example of them returning in verses one through three, he says, his response is that I will heal them. I will heal them. See, they were bent on backsliding, right? They, 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 they were determined to black, backslide. We, led the, we read that in chapter 11, verse 7. But all of us are bent on backsliding. Every single one of us here. In fact, the Bible tells us that you and I are born into sin. We are born in Adam. We are born sinners. No one needs to teach us to sin. And yet, it's the Lord who heals us of sin. It's Christ who died and who gives us a new life, a new birth, that we might be freed from sin. And then look at God's response. He says, not only will I heal them from their backsliding, I I will heal them from sin, but notice he says, I will love them freely. How sweet of words is that? I will love them freely. See, God's love for them is not a response to their love for him. And the same is true for you and me. God's love for you isn't a response for how much you love him. The Bible doesn't say, look up and and, and write down, document how much you love God. Man, you have to prove it. And then God will love you. No, God loved you and I. We were still yet sinners. And that's what we see. In fact, remember, take a step back. Remember the picture of Hosea for Gomer. 
Hosea's love for Gomer was there. Hosea's love was steadfast. Hosea's love for, for his wife drove him to, to buy her back in spite of her continued rebellion. And, and yet, this is the same love that the Lord has for us. Out of his character, because the Bible tells us that God is love, doesn't it? And do you know this, that God has loved you and he has saved you, and that Ephesians 1.6 tells us that you and I were made accepted in the beloved. See, you don't have to prove, and I don't have to prove that you're acceptable to be loved by God. He says that my son has made you accepted. And then because you are accepted in Christ, now you are my beloved. God's love is not earned as it deserved, but it's freely given to as many as that will come to Christ. But are you trying to earn God's love tonight? Are you frustrated in your walk with God? Because maybe, and, and I do it all the time, right? I fall back into this, just, <laughs> this rut of I, I, just subtlety of my heart, right? I, I know that I'm saved um, because of grace, but my heart wants to go back under the law and prove that I deserve God's love. And let these words minister to your heart. Read it again. I will love them freely. And put your name in there. And I will love John freely. I will love Melissa freely. God will love you freely. Notice in verse 8, their response even. He says that as they experience this healing, as they experience the love of God, he says, Ephraim shall say, what have I any more to do with idols? So they're healed from their idolatry. They're healed from what held them. And it was the love of God, wasn't it? See, they say there, Ephraim says, I have heard and I have observed him. Notice that that Ephraim says, in essence, um, I have heard, that can also be translated, I have answered them. Excuse me, I have answered. And what they're saying is that I have answered God's call to, re to repent, to be forgiven graciously, to experience his love. They heard God and they responded. Their actions aligned with what they knew. And then notice this, he, they say then also, and uh, have observed him. And G. Campbell Morgan, he, he, he points this out, that some translate this, and, and you can go either way, there's two camps. But some say that this is the Lord saying, I have heard him, and I have observed Ephraim turning, and that their fruit is found in me. But Campbell Morgan it makes an interesting point here, and I just want to be like, honest and telling you both sides. He's saying that it's Ephraim saying, I have heard the Lord, and responded. And then I will observe him. Notice what they're saying is that I will contemplate God. I will look at and I will meditate upon who God is. And the result of this is that your fruit, or there, your fruit is found in me. And he says that that should be translated, the fruit that God desired is now found in them. Because remember that we were looking a few chapters back when the fruit that Israel had was of oppression. Remember, it wasn't the fruit that God desired. We looked at that in Isaiah. And so what healed them? How were they healed of their backsliding? They had, and what delivered them from the idolatry? Well, we know that it was Christ ultimately, right, who paid the ransom. But what kept them there is they had a renewed vision of who God is, as Campbell Morgan puts it. A renewed vision of who God truly is. In essence, they saw God. Man, they just looked upon God. They were reminded of his love, of his justice, of his mercy, and of his grace. And they, they said, I'll, I'll observe him. They'll keep their eyes there upon the Lord. Isn't, and isn't that the same for you and I? But how do we do this today, right? How, how do we have this fresh fresh vision of God, a renewed vision of, of who God is. Well, remember that Jesus said in John 14, verses 8 through 9, it says there that Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. 
So how can you say, show us the Father? See, our, our, how do we see God is that you look at Jesus. You open the word of God. You get, we, we get into the word. And like I opened up, from Genesis to Revelation, you look for Christ. Because it's Christ, his life revealed, reveals the heart of the Father lived out. It's Christ where you see God's love demonstrated and dying on the cross for you and I. It's Christ, God's love, speaking the truth in love. And it's Christ who has healed us from our own idolatry, and it's Christ's love that keeps us. Because it's Christ's love that is ultimately God's love, which is unquenchable for you and I. So I just pray even, you know, just in, in going through this book, we all have a choice. And it's interesting that, that Jose ends with that in verse 9. He says, Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. But the righteous, they walk in them, but the transgressors stumble in them. So this last verse is a call to each of us. What will we do? How will you respond? Will you turn from the idolatry in your life? Will I in my life and turn to the Lord and walk in the ways of the Lord? Or will you be like Israel, like Ephraim, who lived in continual rebellion? See, notice the choice is yours. God will free us from sin. God will accept us because he's made us accepted in Christ. But what will you choose? And to not choose Christ is to choose to rebel. Know that. To stay neutral, quote unquote, is, is to say, to reject God. I'm rejecting God. But his love, his offer of love is there. Will you receive it even tonight? And so Father, we thank you for your word that is truth. God, we thank you for your word that reveals um, the Father perfectly to us, God. And would you forgive us of um, when we bring our own ideas, God, our own um, idols that we make, Lord, and, and we worship those instead of you. God, and I thank you for this invitation tonight to just come and to have a renewed vision of you, to see you afresh, God, and to see you for who you truly are. Lord, as we go out, of, uh, out from tonight, Lord, and as we spend time, Lord, maybe talking about it with um, someone tonight, or Lord, as we open your word again tomorrow, God, would you help us to see Christ? Lord, help us to see the Father. Lord, fill us afresh with your spirit, God. Give us understanding. And we thank you for your love that is unconquerable, Lord, and for the life of Hosea, which exemplifies that. So we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.